Hello everyone. Welcome to EconoFact Chats. I'm Michael Klein, founder and executive editor of EconoFact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At EconoFact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, drawing on the contributions from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The American narrative celebrates the idea of immigrants arriving to build a better life in a land of abundance. Yet Americans have always struggled with immigration, particularly as it intersects with race, poverty, and economic opportunity. These sentences begin the forthcoming book, Unauthorized, The Human and Economic Costs of Immigration Enforcement in America by Professor Tara Watson of Williams College and her co-author, the writer Kaylee Thompson. In their book, Tara and Kaylee survey research on immigration, research that Tara has contributed to, and they also tell the stories of six immigrant families. I'm very pleased to welcome Tara to Econofact Chats. Along with her scholarly research and the memos that she has contributed to Econofact, Tara also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Microeconomic Analysis at the U.S. Treasury from 2015 through 2016. Tara, good to have you on Econofact Chats. Thank you. Tara, let's begin with some basics. What do we know about undocumented immigration in the United States? Something that's challenging to analyze well because the people we're trying to learn about are undocumented. Well, the latest estimates, which are not precise, but are are pretty good, are based on 2017 data, and they suggest about 10.5 million people living in the U.S. are here without authorization. This number grew from about 3.5 million in 1990 to a peak of 12.2 million in 2007, but it's been gradually declining since the Great Recession. Where are these immigrants coming from now, and is that different from what we've seen in the past? Yeah, it is, actually. Unauthorized migration used to be dominated by people from Mexico, but that's no longer the case. In the past decade, there have been a lot more immigrants coming from Central America, especially the Golden Triangle countries, which are Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And there are a lot more undocumented immigrants from Asia and Africa as well, compared to the past. So nowadays, less than half of the undocumented population was born in Mexico. And how do these undocumented immigrants get to the United States? Well, one uh, important source that most people don't realize is that many undocumented individuals come by overstaying their visas. Usually about uh, 1% or even less than 1% of visitors to the country who come on visas don't leave before their visa expires. And even though it's such a small percentage, it ends up being a lot of people because we have so many people coming through the U.S. in in a given year. So last year, about 500,000 people were supposed to leave uh, according to their visa, but did not. Uh, So nowadays, it's actually more than half, perhaps 60% of undocumented immigrants did not cross the border uh, surreptitiously, but actually came on a visa. So is this is this like the six immigrant families that you profiled? Did that happen with any of them? Only one of the families that we profiled in the book uh, arrived in this way. So uh, two young adults that we talked to from South Korea 
came as children when their father was on a student visa, and they didn't even realize they were undocumented until well into their teenage years when they were trying to start their professional lives. Um, Of course, the media and many politicians focus on people crossing over the U.S.-Mexican border. Is that another source of unauthorized immigration? Yes, it definitely is. And until recently, it was the most common way that undocumented immigrants came to the U.S. Uh, But there's been a really remarkable ramp up in border enforcement in the 1990s and 2000s. And while before that, it was fairly easy to just walk across the border without uh, getting caught or to risk getting caught, but with very mild penalties, maybe a slap on the wrist. um, Nowadays, it's much harder to do. And for the families that you profiled in your book, did any of them cross the U.S.-Mexican border? Yeah, so most of them did. Uh, one that we talked to uh, came as a very small child from Mexico, and uh, her mother would take the entire family across the border every time she had a child to have the baby in Mexico, and then they would all uh, trek back across the desert. Um, that was back in the 1980s. Uh, most of the other families we talked to came more recently across the border and, and generally used paid guides, which are called coyotes, to help them uh, cross the border and charge a few thousand dollars for that. Um, given the numbers, is it relatively easy to cross the border and has it been so for some time? Well, it's definitely gotten a lot harder. Uh, there's been really remarkable ramp up in, in border enforcement um, since around 2000. Uh, there, even before Trump, there were about 700 miles of walls and fencing along the southern border. There's surveillance, drones. Um, it's almost uh, a militarized um, border in places. And one way economists can um, see that is that the cost of a coyote of this guide service has gone way up because it's a higher risk uh, proposition now to cross the border. It's also more dangerous. You see people uh, perishing in the desert every year, usually a few hundred. Um, And the other thing that's changed is on the legal consequences of trying to cross the border. As I mentioned before, it used to be that you would just get a slap on the wrist, but nowadays if you get caught, it it becomes a permanent deportation on your record and that um, affects your likelihood of being able to migrate legally to the US in the future. So Tara, is, is border enforcement central to controlling illegal immigration? Well, I think most uh, experts would agree that border control has deterred some migration. It's become more expensive and dangerous to cross the border. And people who are on the margin of making that decision uh, sometimes are dissuaded from doing it. The evidence also suggests that people who have family in the U.S., particularly children in the U.S., or who are fleeing violent or unsafe situations um, are less likely to be deterred by strong border control. Um, um, you know, go ahead. oh, well, I was just going to mention that um, it used to be the case because of uh, the more relaxed um, atmosphere at the border that people would go back and forth a lot. And that's really not true anymore. Uh, it is uncommon for people even to want to go back to visit their family. One woman we talked to actually um, left her son as a toddler in Guatemala in 2004, and she hasn't been able to see him in person since they Skype, but she hasn't actually physically seen him. Uh, So nowadays, it's actually the case that most undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. have lived here a long time. Uh, The statistics from Pew Research suggest two-thirds of unauthorized immigrants have been here more than a decade. And they're often uh, the parents to U.S. citizen children. So uh, 
in a sense, the lives of undocumented immigrants are really in the U.S. and they live here. And their children would be like, in many cases, the sort of the DACA recipients, right? Uh, well, so citizens that are, are children that are born here would not be DACA recipients. They would be citizens themselves. Children that come uh, as children from another country uh, are often eligible for the, the DACA program, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, which is an a re immigration relief program targeted at those who came as children. Tara, a focus of your book, Unauthorized, is not, in fact, border crossings, but what you and Kaylee called interior enforcement. Can you describe what that means? Yeah. Uh, interior enforcement is enforcement that happens not at the border, but in the, the interior of the U.S. It's typically uh, organized through the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, part of Department of Homeland Security. And it includes anything that is a community arrest that could sometimes be targeted arrests where ICE might learn that someone is living in the community with a criminal history that is an undocumented immigrant might specifically target that person. Uh, but it also includes things like worksite raids where uh, employers are suspected to be hiring undocumented immigrants, or even just a routine traffic stop um, can involve ICE. If a, a local police officer suspects that someone is an immigrant, they may, they may get ICE involved. There's also this um, Secure Communities Program which uh, essentially is that when someone is booked into jail um, or comes across law enforcement, their fingerprints are sent to Department of Homeland Security. And if there's evidence that they might be an undocumented immigrant, uh, ICE might be able to, to take control of the case. Did that happen to any of the families that you profile in your book, this kind of interior enforcement? Yeah. So we interviewed quite a few families where they had had some sort of interior enforcement event uh, one uh, was targeted at their workplace or just upon leaving their workplace um, because of a previous criminal record. Um, but three of them were actually just caught up in routine traffic stops that they happened to get pulled over for one case of broken taillight um, or, you know, some other minor infraction. And uh, that was enough to, to push them into the system. So, um it's it's a, a situation that creates a, a lot of fear among people living here without authorization because uh, it's not much predictability. So, so unlike border enforcement, interior enforcement is targeting people who have been in the U.S. And as you say, a lot of them have been here for quite a long time. That's right. Um, is there evidence on the deterrent effects of interior enforcement? I guess the idea is that, you know, if you do this in the interior, it would keep fewer um, uh, unauthorized people from coming into the United States, but is there any evidence that that in fact works that way? Uh, it's actually really not something we know very much about. I've done some research myself on uh, an earlier program, which uh, was called 287G, and it allowed for cooperation between local law enforcement and um, the Department of Homeland Security. And in that case, I didn't see evidence that people left the U.S. or that they uh, change their migration patterns at all in response to that program being uh, in particular areas. But some other studies have found that um, aggressive laws do affect where migrants choose to live. So for example, Arizona, which is known for being a particularly aggressive state when it comes to immigration enforcement, um, when they ramped up their laws, it looked like some immigrants were choosing to live in other states or perhaps even not come to the U.S. at all. 
Right, but it could be that they're just in other states. So for the U.S. as a whole, it might not have had that big an effect. Right. It's just really hard to get a, a good handle on that question, given the evidence we have. Can you um, infer anything from the information and statistics and analysis of the border literature and the effects of that on what might happen with interior enforcement? Well, I think the, the biggest lesson that we might be able to take away is that it's likely that people who are somewhat indifferent between living in the U.S. and living in their home country might be more deterred than people who have a really strong incentive to come to the U.S. So again, those would be people with close relatives in the U.S. or people who are fleeing, like many of those currently leaving Central America are fleeing violent and unsafe situations um, and are not particularly worried about um, the level of enforcement in the U.S. So along with the, the possible deterrent effects of enforcement, there's some concerns about spillover effects as well, right? And, you know, we've heard about law enforcement um, being concerned that because of this interior um, interior enforcement, that people are not cooperating with their local law enforcement um, uh, people or they're not coming forward um, if they witness a crime. Is there evidence about that? Uh, there is some good evidence that that is the case, actually. So there's a paper showing that in Dallas, Texas, um, when Obama temporarily ended secure communities, um, the program I discussed before, um, that reporting of crimes by the Latino population in Dallas went up. And it, it was not the actual crime rate that appeared to be going up, but rather the reporting and willingness to talk to police. Um, and so uh, I do think that the evidence seems strong that people uh, avoid government institutions when enforcement is, is at high levels. And I also have evidence from my own work showing that in the case of public benefit programs. So specifically, I look at the Medicaid program and show that uh, children of immigrants, citizen children of immigrants who are eligible for Medicaid are less likely to be enrolled by their parents when there's higher enforcement presumably because those parents uh, fear interacting with the government bureaucracy. So you mentioned children, um, but there's also concern that the spillover uh, effects can extend to other legal immigrants as well. For example, you have an Econofact memo about the public charge rule. And can you briefly describe what this rule is and the effects that it, it may have had? Yeah, sure. So public charge is a longstanding doctrine of immigration policy that um, discourages the U.S. from admitting people who are likely to become wards of the state or dependent on the state. And it's something that uh, recently the Trump administration has signaled they want to enforce more seriously. Uh, and particularly they are uh, they have stated that using benefits like Medicaid and the SNAP food assistance program, which historically were not considered uh, to be relevant for public charge, are now relevant. And so this actually shouldn't affect um, most immigrants already living here. So undocumented immigrants, immigrants in particular are not eligible for these programs now. And so uh, really it shouldn't matter either way. And legal immigrants have already been admitted and this uh, new rule should not directly affect them. However, um, a lot of uh, policymakers and advocates are concerned that legal immigrants have been shying away from using these programs for which they're eligible because of this fear and confusion around this new rule. I want to go back to a point you just made that um, may have slipped by people. Um, there's this very important point that undocumented immigrants are not eligible for government benefits like Medicaid and SNAP. SNAP used to be called food stamps. 
In fact, your Econofact memo on this point is one of our most widely read pieces. Yeah, it's a common misperception that um, people think undocumented immigrants are using a high degree of government benefits and they're simply ineligible and it's it's not the case. I think some of the confusion comes from the fact that uh, they often have citizen children who are eligible for programs and do sometimes use them. So um, that creates maybe um, a misperception, but it is definitely the case that undocumented immigrants are not eligible for most government programs. Which you point out in your account effect memo, which just goes to prove that more people should be reading account effect. Absolutely. Um, during the pandemic now, there's this additional concern that immigrant communities are not seeking health care because of concerns about interior enforcement. And this, of course, has implications for the spread of disease, not only in those communities, but to other communities as well. And this has both health and economic consequences. You have another account effect memo with Chloe East and Hillary Coins on this topic. Yes, we uh, recently put out an econofact showing that non-citizens are less likely to use public benefits than other low-income individuals. And for the reasons we just talked about, that's uh, because in many cases they are not eligible. And um, we also show in that econofact that non-citizens have had more uh, employment loss um, associated with the COVID crisis. So um, we think that it's the situation is that non-citizens and this is true for undocumented immigrants in particular as well, are facing um, a really bad employment situation, but do not have access to the um, safety net that they might need to to stabilize their income streams during that um, that situation. Um, and as you said, there it seems likely that the current immigration policy climate is discouraging uh, immigrants from seeking out health care in this time, which is obviously very unfortunate. Finally, Tara, as I, I mentioned at the outset of this account of fact chats, your book features stories of six immigrant families. Can you tell us something about what struck you the most with these narratives? Yeah. Well, one thing that came across through these stories is how arbitrary and capricious the current enforcement system is. So something as trivial as a broken taillight uh, would be enough to completely upend the life of an immigrant who has lived here for a really long time. And um, in part, that's because there really isn't um, strong legislation on immigration. A lot of it is in the hands of exe the executive branch, and actually a lot of it is in the hands of the individual officer making a decision on the ground. And so there's just a tremendous amount of um, capriciousness. Another uh, thing we learned, I would say, is that immigration enforcement really doesn't discourage people from working in the U.S., um, and ostensibly that's one of the goals of, of aggressive enforcement. Um, but people have uh, people with without authorization have very high labor force participation rates. They're very committed to working here. They came to the U.S. in most cases for better opportunities economically. Um, and of course, businesses rely on this labor as well. Um, so what we came away uh, suspecting is a bit cynical, but we believe that um, a lot of the immigration policy efforts or the enforcement efforts in particular are centered around creating the appearance of an aggressive posture and creating climate of fear, uh, but not actually reducing the number of undocumented immigrants very much. So that satisfies both business interests, but also satisfies sort of um, the, the interest in 
presenting an appearance of being tough on immigration. So I guess it's a little bit like, you know, paraphrasing the famous line in the movie Casablanca when Captain Renault says, I'm shocked, shocked to find that politics is going on here. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. All right. Well, Tara, thank you very much for your insights on this really important and controversial issue. I appreciate you joining us on the kind of fact chats. You're welcome.